the things you'll notice almost right away when it comes to the gospel is that Jesus is very much an itinerant preacher, which is basically to say he goes about from town to town, place to place, teaching, preaching, doing all sorts of miracles. But at the same time, you'll also notice that he never actually stays in one place for too long. And the reason why is because, very famously, his eyes are fixed towards Jerusalem. He finally knows that the reason why he's been called to this earth is to ultimately suffer and die in the holy city for the salvation of the world. And as a result, even though he often invites people to follow him in the mode of discipleship, at the same time, he never insists upon it, right? And so there's the invitation, but people are never forced to follow him and become conformed to his being. And this comes through perhaps most strongly in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, where again, the Lord certainly invites people to follow him, to go on this great journey, to be conformed to his being. But at the same time, again, he doesn't insist upon it. And in this particular Gospel, he actually seems to discourage it. And so at the very beginning of the gospel, this guy goes up to Jesus and what he says to him is, I will follow you. In response to which the Lord says what? Foxes have their holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in making this particular statement, what the Lord is basically saying to this young guy is like, look, life is not about milestones and life is not about destinations. To illustrate the point, I remember back in the day when I was still at St. Augustine's Seminary starting to be a priest, a seminarian friend of mine was lamenting the fact that a lot of seminarians tend to look at their seminary formation basically like this. Five years till I get ordained, four years till I get ordained, three years till I get ordained. And my friend's point was that that's how people tend to look at jail. And of course, the whole idea is that if a seminarian looks at his own formation in those terms, again, in terms of milestones and destinations, even though the destination might be priestly ordination, that sort of takes away from the experience because what happens after ordination? Well, there's just life. And you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying this to be demoralizing, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm saying this rather as an invitation to receive your beautiful life day by day, moment to moment. Because think of it like this, right? If we're caught up in milestones and destinations, looking back on previous milestones or looking forward to the next destination, in a certain sense, we're deferring life, holding our breath, living intention, however we want to frame it, instead of simply focusing on being as opposed to doing, simply rejoicing the fact that truly right now in the present moment, we are children of our Heavenly Father heirs of the kingdom of heaven, and people who are truly called to share in God's blessed life. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. But the second sort of narrative beat that you find in the gospel comes when Jesus extends an invitation for someone to follow him, in response to which the guy says to him, first let me bury my father. In response to which the Lord says, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go forth and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And so as a matter of background, in that particular cultural setting at the time of Christ, the obligation to attend to one's family was paramount, especially when it came to one's obligation to one's father, and especially when it comes to the burial of one's father. But again, here's the Lord saying to this young guy, let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, it's shocking for us to hear even now, but it would have been completely shocking back in the day in that particular cultural setting. But you know, that said, the thing I want to impress upon you is that the Lord is saying two really important things to this young guy in this particular statement. And so first of all, what he's doing is that he's basically establishing a sense of priority when it comes to the spiritual life. So yes, love people. Yes, love your family. Yes, love your father. But at the same time, you're called to love God above all things. And you see, in this, we're called to make an act of trust, trusting and believing that truly, if I put God first in all things, if I love him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind and all my strength, then I will love people better. I will love my family better. I will actually love my father better. But you see, the second thing the Lord is saying and making this particular statement is essentially this. 
once it becomes abundantly clear what it is the Lord wants you to do, whether we're talking about big or small things, don't hesitate. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. But instead, immediately do the thing that the Lord wants you to do. Now, obviously, there's something to be said about having good process. And so, for example, it's really good for us to know that the Lord typically reveals His will for us in a slow and gradual way over a long period of time. It's also a good habit to test the voice that we perceive that we're hearing. Is this truly the voice of the shepherd or is it actually another voice? But at the same time, the point still remains that once it becomes abundantly clear that yes, it is the Lord who speaks, and yes, this is the thing that He wants me to do, specifically and concretely, well then don't wait. Don't wait, and again, don't hesitate, but instead say to the Lord some variation of, Here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. Okay, but that brings us to the third scenario that we find in the context of the gospel. And so this third guy goes up to Christ, and he says to him, Look, I'll follow you, right? But first let me say farewell to my family. In response to which the Lord says to him, No one who puts his hands at a plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you see, in this, the Lord is making a subtle allusion to any number of different passages in the Old Testament where people basically look back after having made this initial decision to go the way of discipleship and conversion. And so, for example, think about the book of Exodus, where the Israeli people, they've just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and now they're, you know, wandering in the desert, walking towards a promised land. But what do they do? They, they have this recurring temptation to look back on Egypt with, with fond memories, thinking that things were so much better back in the day, even though the reality is that they were actually in slavery. Or think about the book of Genesis, chapter 19, the story of Lot's wife, right? So in the aftermath of the destruction of those wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, what happens? Lot's wife looks back as a result of which she's turned into a pillar of salt. And of course, the takeaway message with regards to both these different stories is that the decision to follow Christ, whether we're talking about, again, a conversion or full-blown discipleship, is never simply a one-time thing. But instead, that decision must be renewed over and over again, time after time, throughout the course of your life. Because the reality is the devil is always lurking, and evil is always present. But you see, we can even take this thing one step further, right? Because this image of the plow that the Lord uses in responding to this third guy, it's no accident. But again, it's a subtle allusion to the Old Testament, specifically 1 Kings chapter 19, which basically tells the story of the choosing of Elisha as a successor to the prophet Elijah. And so as a matter of background, what happens in the context of the story, Elijah, again, he's looking for his successor and he stumbles upon this guy named Elisha, who is basically a rich man. And we know it's because he has a yoke of oxen, which in the words of Bishop Robert Barron is sort of like saying that this guy had a garage full of sports cars. So again, this guy, Elisha, was a really rich guy. So what ends up happening is that Elijah throws his mantle or he throws his cloak over Elisha, thereby claiming him to be his successor. In response to which, Elisha does a couple things. So first of all, he kills his oxen, then he burns his plow to make a fire. Then he uses that fire to basically cook the meat to feed the surrounding community. And then what happens after that is that he runs. He runs after the prophet Elijah. In other words, in sharp contrast to those three guys that we find in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, these men who are invited to follow the Lord in a stance of discipleship, to go on this great adventure, who respond with hesitation by making all sorts of excuses. Here now is Elisha. This man of deep desire, deep longing for God, once it becomes abundantly clear that yes, this is the direction that God wants me to run, and perhaps more to the point, this is the person he wants him to be, well then he simply runs joyfully in the direction that God wants him to run. And of course, the takeaway message for each one of us is that we too, without exception, we too are called to do the same. And may God bless you all.